was the J cut and this is the K cut. We're here tonight to talk all about sequels. And my name's Rachel. I'm a huge fan of international and classic movies. And I'm about to start a project writing about films around the world. Who else is here with me? I am the sequel. My name is Andreas. I love uh, art house cinema and just anything of any genre and any decade. But if I had to pick, it's art house stuff. Who's uh, the third in this trilogy? Uh, James here. Uh, I do fun things with audio and music and stuff. I produce music under the alias Boutique Paul, and I'm one half of the Prefer Not to Say podcast. Amazing. So, yes, uh, as Rachel said, this week's topic is all about sequels. We're not going to have a pitch this week. Instead, we're going to divide the episode into two parts. First off, sequels that we really like for whatever reason. What makes a really good sequel? And part two sequels that we don't like or simply refuse to watch given their foundation or the basis of their of their creation entirely so uh rachel since you started already what was the sequel that you did like we'll do all the good ones first all right so mine is from 1993 and it is adam's family values oh Oh, nice yeah Uh, have you guys seen that yes oh most definitely oh yeah we all grew up on it i think so there's nothing wrong with the first adam's family movie it's fun they have some good performances it portrays the family pretty well but it's sort of like the first adam's family movie was a warm-up and then in the second one they're really starting to have fun so you've got tighter jokes you've got a better plot that's more memorable you've got incredible performances and it's just all come together in a much stronger way and that thanksgiving scene will live on in history forever almost definitely Mm -hmm. yeah i have to agree with what you say the first one i feel like it's in a lot of people's hearts because of the cast you know you have like angelica houston rest in peace raul julia a very young but promising Christina Ritchie, obviously Who Christopher stole the Lloyd. <laughs> exactly. But it felt like, you know, that was like a cast based on the story, which has existed for decades, you know, the Adams family. But it's the sequel, uh, The Family Values, that, as you said, people grew up on because it feels like the one where they just knew how to do it right this time around. Mm-hmm. So what could a 90s Adams family provide? And I feel like, yeah, they nailed it with the darkly comedic tone, uh, you know, the absurdity and really utilizing this cast, which, as you pointed out, Christina Ritchie as as Wednesday stole the show this entire time because they knew how to utilize her. So um, I think it's an excellent choice. Yeah, they took everything that was good and they just ramped it up. It really left a good result. Oh, definitely. For sure. Like I was already, you know. I think Christina Ricci is such a treasure when it comes to cinema, just the versatility of the role she's been able to play throughout her career. But I don't think we'll ever get anybody if they, you know, because I know they're trying to do another Adams Family. I don't think anybody will ever play Wednesday Adams quite like her. But I also like the sequel because the first one is good, but I always have this feeling of how did we get here? Because it's, you know, Uncle Fester's doesn't have his memory, doesn't remember his family. And then they're trying to like get him to remember. And it's like, okay, how do we get here in the first place? Like that was always like a, they just sort of threw us in this situation and we have to deal with it. But the next one, it's like, okay, we kind of have more of a cohesive story where it kind of like, you know, rises to a peak and then, you know, descends into a perfect resolution. But yeah, it's definitely, I don't know. It's, it's one of those movies that's just, I is so closely tied to my childhood. It's hard not to be nostalgic over it. Oh, absolutely. 
It's interesting, though, because I forgot that the first one also centered around Uncle Fester. I feel like they made Uncle Fester, like, the focal point of both because, I mean, it's Christopher Lloyd. Even though the cast is so huge, I feel like riding off this whole Back to the Future thing, it's like, let's make him the focal point of both, which is kind of interesting because he's technically not the focal point of the Adams family like at all so it's an interesting direction I think yeah and I think the summer camp setting is absolutely brilliant for the second part of the movie because it takes them out of their creepy universe where they can be exactly who they want to be and it really shows them in a different light and I think exposes both what's good and what's weird about them yeah because usually it's about people going to them or like you know their house like come on in or um and in so many iterations it's either that or just the more obvious public settings like a school or a mall but here it's a little bit of like a sandbox for them to really go hog wild so i agree it's definitely a positive exploitation of what they could have brought to the table with this iconic family Anyway, I do think that's an excellent pick for your sequel, as I have said already. Uh, I went a little bit more obscure with mine. It's not, okay, it's not obscure, but I don't feel like it's been talked about enough. So there's this trilogy by Marcel Pagnol, if I pronounced <gasps> that correctly. Okay, so you do know this. <laughs> so yes, yes, yes. There's a trilogy. It's referred to as multiple things. Uh, I, I believe the Maasai trilogy is one. But all three parts, which is very unusual for the 30s, are directed by different people, including Marcel Peniel himself for one of them. My pick is the second iteration of this trilogy. It's called Fanny. So to give a little bit of perspective, the Marseille trilogy is named after the three components. It gave the three different people within it. So... The first one, I believe, is called... Oh, goodness, what's that gentleman? Marius. Name? Marius, thank you. So, okay, that, that helps a lot. Marius and his relationship with the titular Fanny, whose perspective takes up the second story, and Cesar is the third. So, it's this very interesting story where the first film, without spoiling, but kind of spoiling, because it's essential to know for Fanny... Basically, the first film is Marius because the entire duration is him trying to figure out, should I stay? Should I go? What am I doing with my life? This and this. And ultimately, he leaves. So Fanny is kind of the cleaning up after the fact, while Cesar is the resolution. But I love this second film so much because I feel like it takes so much from the beginning film. Like, what happens when your loved one leaves for an interdeterminate amount of time? Do you resolve yourself? Do you figure out how to live independently what happens but then the film also tosses in so many curveballs and i don't want to spoil anything but i remember watching this but being like this is from like the 30s this is so progressive with, with how many twists and how many turns it's willing to toss your way just to make the titular fanny's life just so difficult to watch on screen especially given the setting and the context which obviously it's the marseille trilogy because it takes place and Marseille. So obviously, like many things in the 30s, it's driven by a post-war world and what that means for a lot of the stereotypes of society, like what gender roles are being played at the time, the different, I guess, what society expected of each gender. Also, being in France, there was a little more leeway, wasn't there? Yes. Uh, I know that La Femme du Boulanger, his film he made in 1938, was considered rather shocking in America for the way they portrayed gender and sexuality and things like that. Exactly. And I feel like in the same way, the Marseille trilogy was trying to not encourage these stereotypes, but almost shove them in our face and say, this isn't how things should be. Because so much of Fanny, like the film, is Fanny the character having to answer to society's nonsense. Cesar is also really good 
but it's the resolution of all of this stuff. So it's Fanny which introduces the bulk of this challenge. And yeah, I feel like I've gone on for like an hour about this, but I do love it. I love the entire trilogy, but this second film out of three, which is unusual because usually outside of stuff like The Godfather, the second film is usually like not the peak. So like if you look at like Lord of the Rings or the Three Colors trilogy, you usually start or end really strongly. Whereas with this, I feel like Fanny is the best of the three. Mm. I'll have to check that out. Yeah, Rachel, what did you like about it? I haven't seen the trilogy, but I love Pagnol, so... Oh, which one have you seen? I've only seen uh, Femme de Boulanger, but... Oh, okay, so you haven't seen, like, any of the... No. Any of the films, but you were you were familiar with them. Yeah, yeah, I've heard about them, because they, they talk about them a lot in film criticism and things like that. Cool, well, that is my pick. I'm sorry I picked something that nobody has seen. <laughs> I thank you for being for being considerate. Uh, James, have you picked something that we have seen? I decided to go with Blade Runner 2049. Okay. Ooh, ooh, yes, yes, yes. It's not often that you have a situation where someone can come up with a sequel to a property more than three decades later, which is already impressive. But to legitimately expand on every single aspect of the film in a way that nobody saw coming, just it, it floored me when I saw it. I think it's just, you know, the combination of, well, one, the cast. I mean, Ryan Gosling was a perfect pick as the lead role. Oh, yeah. It's kind of his lane, though. You know, he's kind of this oftentimes he's like, you know, he'll he'll be in like the odd comedy or whatever. But, you know, that dark and brooding character who, you know, there's more to him than you can ever see. It just worked for this. And obviously, Harrison Ford returning as Deckard is just a given, especially because, you know, he's reprising all his classic roles in recent years, which is just hilarious. But also, I think. Denis Villeneuve is just proving to be quite a master of cinema. I haven't seen any of his French language films, but I've seen all of his English language films and I have never been disappointed in him. He just knows how to execute. He's almost like he's very much like Christopher Nolan, where it's like, is every film he makes perfect? No, but it's at least captivating to a point where it's, you know, his weakest is better than some like mediocre director's best. And not to mention that Roger Deakins cinematography is just breathtaking throughout, especially with the color palettes. First Oscar. Oh, was that his first Oscar? Yes. Yes, first finally. He was, uh, Rachel, you would know this. How many times was he nominated before? Something ridiculous, like 14? It was a really long list, but he was always the bridesmaid and never the bride. Yes. For like Our Brother Where Art Thou, No Country for Old Men, Fargo, uh, Kundun. But even the second one for, was that 1917? 1917, which was only two right. years later. First off, Denise Villeneuve. I adore. And if you haven't seen those French language films, Polytechnique is underrated. Shattering. Also on D is one of the greatest films I've ever seen. So that's like on a whole nother level. It's his opus, I would say. So I can't recommend that particular film enough. Blade Runner 2049, it's one of those things where you feel like in theory, it's a disastrous kind of idea to have. Like, why would you want to continue this? And I was fearful because I adore Blade Runner to the point where... I never want to find out for sure if Harrison Ford's character is actually an android or not. And I was concerned that that was going to be spoiled in this film. Luckily, that is not the case. There's still that ambiguity. And I feel like, yeah, Ryan Gosling as the next Harrison Ford is a fantastic option because they had a very similar acting approach in both films. As far as sequels that technically don't really need to exist go, it's one of the finer ones you'll see. I thought they had a really hard juggling act that they managed to pull off pretty well. Yeah, I mean, it is very much its own film as well, which also helps, but it's clearly a direct sequel. 
where this is from the same universe, the same world, it's just later on. And what I love about the two of them, because they have very distinct styles, the first one, Blade Runner, the Ridley Scott one, is so mysterious, whereas the Villeneuve film picks up his signature cynicism that he has, where it almost feels like a more punishing film. So it really is almost apples and oranges at this point, even though it's the same film, same storyline, just told at different times, I guess, but they're both very, very, very different in terms of their natures. Again, one's mysterious, one's very punishing, so it's almost like pick your poison type thing. Yeah, and I'm also glad they were able to bring back Hampton Thatcher to write the screenplay, except it got to be just him and not a rewrite like in the original Blade Runner. And for those who don't know, because I had watched the documentary on Blade Runner, apparently Hampton Thatcher's original screenplay was a little bit smaller in scope and primarily took place in, I think, kind of apartments and stuff like that. Like it was supposed to be smaller and a bit more noirish, which is kind of more like the short story that it was originally based on. Yes, the Philip K. Dick one. Mm-hmm. I also like that they didn't have to go through the trouble of having so many different cuts of the movie throughout the years. They could just make one film and that's it. Oh, thank goodness. Oh, I know what you mean. And it feels like they actually retained Denise Villeneuve's in- initial um, ideas and everything. Like there wasn't even like that type of struggle, which is nice for once, you know? It's just unfortunate that the marketing campaign was complete garbage for it. I know. Yeah, it didn't land as hard as it could have, I think. It was like a bomb, I think. They played up too much of the fact that it's a sequel to Blade Runner and not its own movie itself. Because, like, yeah, it's a sequel, but there's only so much of a population that actually cares about that. Yeah. Especially for a 30-year-old movie. Exactly. Well, at least Dune isn't, like, a sequel to the atrocious David Lynch Dune or the Jodorowsky Dune that he was trying to make, which eventually became Alien, I guess, in ways. Um, Dune is very much standalone. I think you mean the awesome David Lynch Dune. <laughs> I love David Lynch, but I, I, I can't. I can't lie to myself. Uh, it's awesome in ways. Uh, no, at least Dune is its own thing. So I feel like the demographic will be easier to seize. Well, I say that and then the pandemic happens. So it's been pushed. And it's going to be pushed again. So who knows? But it's, Dune is not a sequel. As I just said, we're talking about sequels and we do want to see Dune. Correct. What? sequels do we not like or do we not want to see the sequels that just either scream just bad vibes or you've seen them and your bad thoughts about them were correct you know you you end up with a stinker uh rachel what was the sequel that you picked that you saw or didn't see reese Two. Oh no. Well, haven't seen it. <laughs> yes, some very misguided relatives of mine thought it was a great idea to put on at a family event to keep the kids occupied for an hour and a half. I was maybe nine. I've never forgotten that treachery. Oh wow. So that's stuck with how you. How bad is it? Well, okay. A couple of the songs are catchy, and that's about the best thing I can say for it. It's the plot's so forgettable, I had to Google it again to get ready for this episode. Michelle Pfeiffer's in it, and she's kind of fun, but that's about it. And it's just like, it has no connection to the original, and the characters are very poorly drawn, and it's a lot cruder than the original Grease. For that matter, I don't think Grease really needed a sequel. It wrapped up pretty nicely, you know, there was a cute song and dance, and then they flew off in a car to a life of mediocrity, I presume. And why was this needed? Why did they spend all this money and time and effort on a movie that was so bland, so dull, and just never hit a single note correctly? Well, Because Hollywood. Yeah. They do that. 
for those who haven't seen it like myself, I've heard the notoriety and I know that it's only good for bringing Michelle Pfeiffer into the, you know, the, the acting industry because it was mm -hmm. her breakthrough. What is this actually about? You know, um, it's pretty much just the new T-Birds and the new pink ladies at the school, Rydell High. And one of them wants to date a guy, but he's all mysterious. And it's more or less a retread of the first one, but with more motorbikes. So it's like Hangover 2. It's like the exact <laughs> same thing, except this time it's not a broken tooth. It's a tattoo on the face. This time it's not a it's not a baby. It's a monkey or whatever. Yeah, and like there's a beauty pageant know. in there somewhere. And yeah. It, so oh, they should God. have done a third one to redeem it like in Hangover 3, because I thought Hangover 3 kind of made up for the mistakes of Hangover 2. I never saw the third one. I, I thought I skipped I, the third you know, one too. Yeah, fool me once, shame on me. Like that's that was my philosophy. <laughs> I, I couldn't. I'm sorry. No, and actually, they actually improved on it on that one. I was surprised. I was like, man, wow, you guys really hit the mark this time. It also called back some things from the first one and tied up some loose ends. But did it resolve Greece too, though? <laughs> no, nothing will ever resolve Greece too ever being made. Crime against music. Crime against movies. Well. Okay, well, I'm sorry that you had to sit through that. James, did you have to sit through the film that you picked? No, because I just absolutely refused. I decided to go with S. Darko, the sequel to the cult classic 2001's Donnie Darko. Oh, yeah. no. Oh, yeah. I, I discovered Donnie Darko when I was in high school, and the sequel came out the year I graduated. And while it seemed interesting enough, I just knew it wouldn't be a good idea for me to watch it. There are just certain things you don't touch. And whether anybody likes, loves, or hates Donnie Darko, this is a property that you just leave alone. It exists as it is and should forever be that. And not to mention Richard Kelly wasn't involved because he signed away the sequel rights when he signed the contract to make the first one. So he had zero involvement in it. And the things that made Donnie Darko good strike me as the kind of unique aspects that only happen once, really, and it comes together in that way. You can't really re redo that magic. Yeah, you can't. I mean, Richard Kelly couldn't redo the magic on any other movie he worked on because I'm not sure if he, we were tricked into thinking he was a genius or what, because Southland Tales was not good. Yeah, like a lot of other people, Donnie Darko was one of my first forays into cinema when I was a young teenager. You know, the extended edition with the X-ray, whatever, on Jake Gyllenhaal at HMV, which everybody bought, was just screaming to me. And, you know, I, I watched that thing countless times as a teen, so I, I haven't seen it in years, and I still remember most of it. That sequel just seemed like a really, really piss-poor idea that I think anybody with the right mindset would stay the hell away from. So I, I give credit to both of you for agreeing. It just seems like trying to capture lightning in a ball twice. This is what I hate about like cult sequels. It worked once against the grain. You, you're not going to exactly. capture it again, whether you're the Big Lebowski, which that sequel I just refused to see. Uh, that's they made my a sequel to Rocky Horror and it was garbage. Did they actually? Oh, God. It was called Shock Treatment and it should not have existed. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, luckily for mine, I have not seen it either. And again, every time we do this pod, we give the years. So we don't know what we're actually picking, but we make sure that we don't pick the same film. So, you know, if I pick 1985 and somebody picks 1970, we know we didn't pick the same thing. Unfortunately, I still feel like mine was so obvious 
because I said 1990, and I made clear, but given last week's running joke that we're not picking the Godfather, I said I'm still not picking the Godfather, and unfortunately, I think I only narrowed things down. So I'm not gonna like try and build it up. It's the two Jakes. So I knew it, <laughs> obviously. So the backstory for those who don't know what that is: Chinatown by Roman Polanski and written by Robert Town is one of the greatest films ever made and my personal choice for the greatest screenplay ever made. So obviously I hold Chinatown to a high regard. The film stars Jack Nicholson as J.J. Giddis, who is a detective who basically goes a couple steps too far trying to do the right thing. I don't want to spoil Chinatown if you haven't seen it. But it's important for this when it comes to setting up the two Jakes. Basically, without spoiling Chinatown, that film resolves in a way that just even one extra second that the editing booth would have left in in that particular film is too much. Absolutely. And so perfectly that it's like a sick feeling in your stomach that you will never, ever, ever forget. So uh, Robert Town and Jack Nicholson saw fit to bastardize that train of thought and made a sequel which just completely does not need to exist so why? 27 uh, years after the original no less <laughs> why it's not like jack nicholson couldn't get a paycheck i know well yeah exactly and it's like you know after three oscars so what's interesting though is Polanski's obviously not involved uh, for obvious reasons robert town is though because he wrote this thing but directing it Oddly enough, there's a guy who should have known better in this particular instance is J.J. Giddis himself, Jack Nicholson. So it's like, no. can't you can't you see why this is wrong? You are the guy it is based on. You were in the original. Why does this exist? So it's another neo-noir from what I can understand, you know, outside of its decent looking cast. Basically, J.J. Giddis is now doing another similar investigation, but instead of the, the water problem in Los Angeles, it's it's oil. So it's basically as futile as like that Wall Street sequel, Money Never Sleeps, which that still doesn't make any sense to me what that means. But same same difference. It just should not have it. It, it just shouldn't exist. That's that's my my punctuation point on that. I agree. I found out about that and I was like, why? Why would you? Lightning doesn't strike twice in this instance. You had perfection. Don't tamper with it. It also just seems like the fact that Jack Nicholson directed it himself, it seems like it was a vanity project. Like that was going around a lot in some actors' careers where they'll direct a movie and it's like their passion project and it may or may not actually work out. It just seems so superfluous. It does seem like a vanity project because if you look at so many elements, like the cast, for instance, Harvey Keitel. Meg Tilly, Madeline Stowe, Eli Wallach. Seriously? What's that? Seriously? That good a cast? <laughs> That's what I'm saying. So it's like, these are probably buddies of his. The music, this is what's interesting. And like, if I ever dared watch this mediocrity that's the other thing it's got a mediocre review so it's not even so bad it's amazing. It's boring for what it sounds like. So if I ever did dare watch this, the music oddly enough, is by singer-songwriter Van Dyke Parks, the guy who helped Brian Wilson make Smile for the Beach Boys. That's very, very strange. Like, I don't know what that even means, but I don't know. Is that a selling point? Is that good enough, you guys? (laughs) I think I'll successfully avoid this for the rest of my life. Yeah. 
You know, on the topic of sequels, did you guys know that M. Night Shyamalan makes sure he retains sequel rights in all his contracts for his films to ensure that sequels never get made? But like, uh, to play devil's advocate here, who would want to make sequels (laughs) based on these works? There would be somebody. I can almost guarantee you someone would be like, hmm, you know what? We could do Sixth Sense 2. We'll call it Seventh Sense and then come up with something ridiculous. Apparently, there was an abandoned sequel to Seven. Uh, It was was based on the Ten Commandments. It was going to be called Eight. And Morgan Freeman was going to be the only one to return, and they were going to give him psychic abilities or something like that. No, something ridiculous no. like that. Yeah. Shut it down. Is, <laughs> that, is that what the, the eighth deadly sin is? Thou shall not remake movies like this? Uh, like, <laughs> quite possibly. Yes. Because that doesn't make any sense. Because seven is, seven is seven for a reason. It should have been ten for the Ten Commandments, you know, where it's actually like a smart evolution. But no, most sequels aren't smart. However. Oh, well, floating around the internet, there is a sequel to Casablanca out there, and it resolves all the unanswered questions of the first movie in a neat tidy package which is the exact opposite of the point and do not google this sequel because you will rip your brains out what the hell is that called uh, i can't even remember I, I i i think it was called brazzaville oh of course and so rick and louie are on their adventures and they meet another girl but ingrid bergman's still floating around somewhere and i don't know that that no that just uh don't play it against sam that just sounds like a real waste of time like yeah no, but enough about that. What about films that we actually do like? <laughs> so here is our recommendations of the week. James, what is your recommendation of the week to wrap things up? You know, I'm going to go with Dream by Kim Ki Duck. I don't even know what that is. Please tell us more. Oh, it's great. <laughs> it's a really odd film. It deals with two characters that are connected by dreams. The main character, there's a male and female. The male character, Jin, awakes from a dream where he causes a traffic accident. He finds out that the accident actually took place. And there's the woman of the story. She is actually involved in this accident. And you find out they're connected somehow to where whatever he dreams, she acts out in her sleep. So it kind of causes this weird thing of like all these, you know, happenings and the police are getting involved. And then there's this funny part where they go to somebody and to try to figure out what's going on. And they give them the answer of, oh, to break this, you have to fall in love with each other. And they're like, wait, what? And then it's this whole, you know, back and forth between them. And then they're trying to figure out different ways to kind of suppress it. Like, you know, one goes to sleep while the other one's awake and the back and forth schedule and yeah, it's it's a really good film overall. It's also really well paced in that I haven't seen any other Kim Ki-duk films, but I've heard all his films are very, very well paced like that. Yeah, rest, first off, rest in peace, uh, Kim Ki-duk. He was a very problematic individual, but um, I do love his films. I do love spring, summer, fall, winter, and spring, which is his opus. I haven't seen Dream, though, so but I do like some of his work. So I just totally didn't realize he died. I just looked this up. Yeah, no, he he passed away like literally like a month ago, I think, to the day almost. So I think that's a great recommendation. Uh, Rachel, what is yours? I'm going to help us meet our Canadian content quota for the episode. And I'm going to talk about Pontypool, which is a horror movie, serious horror movie about a zombie apocalypse. And I believe it's small town, Ontario. I can't remember. It's near the border of Ontario and Quebec. And I won't spoil how, because it's part of the story, but 
the way that this apocalypse plays out is very uniquely Canadian, and I cannot say anything more than that, but it's got some excellent actors in it. It's got a really great twist, and it's not your typical horror film, so highly recommend. Cool stuff. I'm going to go on this similar type of, uh, you know, partially horror, partially, I guess, living vicariously. Also, I brought up Dune earlier. It's not David Lynch. It's Alejandro Jodorowsky that I'm thinking of. My film is Santa Sangre, which is his 80s opus. A very peculiar film, but it almost feels like the film that Tim Burton's always been trying to make. Like, very strange but sincere. It's this traumatized son of circus performers who breaks out of an asylum to reunite with his mother, who whose arms have been chopped off. So he has to play as her arms, almost like... She is possessing his body and he has to do everything that she says. So, you know, against his will, he has to like do whatever she wants because he is literally her arms and hands. So it obviously, because it's John Orosky, gets very, very, very strange. But I feel like it's his most sympathetic film that he ever made during his prime. It's strange, but it's good stuff. I've been meaning to watch his films, specifically the things that I've learned about El Tapo and how bizarre it is. El Tapo is the greatest thing he's ever done. But it's most certainly not for everyone, I can tell you that much. But it's it's certainly memorable, I can tell you that much. But before we step into our next episode, eventually, of Crazy Acid Westerns, that was the K-Cut, and now we are going into the L-Cut. <laughs> <laughs> 